Hello, and welcome to History 452, the History Seminar Special. We hope you enjoy this deep dive into student research. Today, we're talking with three students who are studying the racial uprisings in Detroit in 1942, the use of photography in the shaping of public opinion of the Korean War, and a deep dive into the CIA's 1959 activity in Tibet. We hope you enjoy it. Shane Peterson. My name is Jaden Smith. And we are seniors in the history capstone this year. Since we can't be in person to present our topics at the student union this year, we're doing this other option where you get to listen to us for 45 minutes instead. Yeah! <laughs> so the first person up is going to be Jaden. All right. Um, and if you guys don't know, our topics for this this semester, this term is the 19 vice in the 1950s, and it was a very rough topic. So don't uh, <laughs> we might have had some liberation to uh, liberty to to maybe uh, brace off of that. But most of the topics that you're probably going to be listening to are based around the 1950s or in that time frame, maybe a little bit before or after. Um, so um, Jaden. Um, Will you give us a brief summary of your project? I'm studying the Detroit race riots of 1943. Um, most people contribute the riots to being started to by uh, housing and an influx of worker migrants from the southern states into the industrial northeast. However, um, I found evidence that uh, it, it was also caused by employment, work, and jobs um, through a combination of both competition of jobs um, and discrimination in the workplace, as well as uh, predominantly uh, Southern workers who migrated uh, to Detroit and expected it to be a, a lot like uh, what they had experienced in the South. So for example, uh, Jim Crow, um, they expected to be in, at the top of the social, or the social hierarchy, um, and they were disappointed uh, once they uh, got there and realized that African Americans were being treated in some, some instances uh, as equals, um, especially with regard to pay. Um, and so that fueled uh, a lot of the white violence during the riots. However, um, we've also seen that uh, a lot of historians have not paid much attention to it. Um, there's probably various reasons as to why, but um, they focus, like I said, more on housing and, uh, and influx of migration. Okay, so uh, why did you choose this topic? I had touched on this topic uh, my sophomore year when I was doing research then, and I, I, I just, like I said, I just touched on it, and I didn't really get to go into it much with much detail. However, after I finished that project, I, I started researching it a little bit more and realized that in, in I guess, in the grand scheme of things, um, this is probably one of the most least studied, uh, I guess, racial conflicts um, in, in terms of riots uh, in American history. Um, there's only a handful of really big, uh, exhaustive and comprehensive sources on them. Whereas say, for exam example, the Detroit race riot of 1967, there is literally hundreds and 
hundreds of sources on that just that one instance, whereas there's only a handful on this. So I guess it, it, it kind of uh, pulled me in in that respect too. Um, how did you go about finding or choosing your primary sources? So it's been very, very, very difficult with COVID. Um, the, uh, the main archive and library for primary sources is closed due to COVID. But um, I've had to improvise a little bit and, and do something that I have never had to do with regard to historical research. And that is look for primary sources through secondary sources. Not necessarily look at uh, the secondary source analysis of, of those primary sources, although I do, but um, looking at the primary source and trying to find the Easter eggs uh, that other historians have overlooked and, and try to use those, um, as well as um, I am con in contact with a, uh, a, a former PhD candidate, I guess, and now a professor who wrote their dissertation on the riots and she's provided me with a couple uh, primary sources that she still had from the archives, but other than that, uh, mostly from secondary sources. Um, so what would be your most interesting finding out of all this research you've been doing? My most interesting finding is that um, I'm amazed at how little research was done uh, on the role that the white rioters played during the whole conflict. Um, Everybody has studied uh, the, the role that African-Americans played in the riot, but I mean, there's very, very little on what prompted uh, the white rioters and, and what really motivated them to do the amount of destruction that they did. So that, that was very interesting to, interesting to me. Um, the other interesting fact that I, I didn't realize until after I started researching this was how much, um, anti-communist and, and, and really fear of communism and socialism there was in America at that time. I mean, right after the war happened, you had, or uh, right after the uh, riots happened, you had telegrams and memorandums being passed throughout government officials' offices that, that, would, uh, that would blame anywhere from the KKK to uh, Japanese spies in America for instigating it. Um, it really was quite amazing to see all the different I guess, for lack of a better term, conspiracy theories that were floating around at that time. Um, I have a follow-up question for that. Um, what, what do, why do you think there was a lack of research on the white riders? Um, do you think there's a reason for that, or do you think that's just the, they weren't really in the, I guess, yeah, why, why do you think there was a lack? Um, I mean, this is purely speculation, but I suppose it has something to do with uh, the fact that most of the time, uh, especially around this particular period in time, um, race riots happened, or I guess quote-unquote race riots, happened because of some sort of um, uh, discrimination or disparagement uh, among African Americans. And so then I guess that probably focuses a lot of the inquiry into them. But also, um, there isn't as many primary sources uh, on white rioters as there is the African-Americans because right after the riot, everybody started blaming African-Americans. Secondly, um, arrest records, uh, almost all arrests made during the riots were of African-Americans. Um, so there's very little on, on uh, the white rioters. Okay. Um, why should people care about this topic? Um, <laughs> I guess at, at 
at minimum to make sure that it never happens again, but also to understand that while yes, there was a housing shortage, and while yes, there was an executive order that said, you know, African Americans have to be treated equally in the workplace as white workers, it, when it really came down to it, there was a lot of discrimination, there was a lot of resentment. And uh, Detroit at this point in time was a particular powder keg uh, just waiting to go off and this is what did it. And, I, um, and in order to understand why it went off, you have to understand all the variables that went into to play, including uh, what happened at work. Our lives are divided up into, I guess, three main categories. Our, our private lives, so at home, and then what we do in public uh, for recreation and whatnot, and then our work. Um, and we sometimes fail to realize how important work, or how, how much of an influence work has on our lives until it's, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's just something that we can overlook. And then finally, do you think you will ever revisit this topic in the future? Probably not. I plan to practice <laughs> law for the rest of my life, so probably not. <laughs> Uh, I might want to do it if I get a sweet book deal or something, but doubt it. <laughs> I do have a follow-up question just to make it more relevant. Um, considering you've studied, this is, I believe, your second race, right, that mm -hmm. you've studied for? Well, racial conflict. Yeah. Racial conflict. So not, I, I don't know if you could uh, uh, declare yourself an official, like, you know, expert in this field, but um, I think you've done significantly more research than the average uh, American. So how do you think... Um, maybe the racial, what's going on in today's world, how do you think that is going to be recorded in history? Do you think it will have the term race riots or do you think it will be protest? And like, I guess that's my question. How do you think what's going on in today's society will be recorded in history? Well, I guess one of the thing, one of the trends that I've seen, so I've studied the Colfax massacre, I've studied uh, the Little Rock crisis of 1957 and then obviously this. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed um, as a little bit of a trend is how the African Americans involved in these conflicts are never armed. I mean, I mean, obviously, I shouldn't say never. I mean, there's probably a couple of them that you can find, but for the vast majority uh, of them are not armed. However, when you look at the white agitators, there is always almost uh, some sort of weaponry involved, whether it be knives or pipes or guns in the case of the Colfax Massacre. Um, it, it really is astonishing to me uh, with that respect. But as for what's going on right now, it's hard to say. I mean, at the same time, you know, as historians, we have to make sure that we're not looking at certain instances through a modern lens. But um, I mean, I guess the definition of a protest is, uh, is disrupting the norm and the status quo in order to uh, influence or in order to shine spotlight on something that needs a social redress so I guess in that respect they're probably achieving their goal right now um, and when I say they I mean everybody that's protesting right now um, however uh, I don't know that I can speculate at this point at how it will go down in history do you think it will be recorded as a, the race riots of 2020? Is that, you know, that year? do you think it will be recorded as the race riots of 2020 or do you think it will, it will be, I mean, your thoughts? I think that the term race riots is going to become extinct here pretty quick, mainly because, and Detroit race riots are a perfect example of that. I just use race riots, by the way, but um, uh, Detroit, you had both black and white agitators. And when you look at the amount of destruction, they were either equal or the white agitators did far more. And the 
only reason I say that is because when you look at the types of crimes that were being committed by both groups, the white rioters were upturning cars, they were setting them on fire, setting businesses on fire, they were assaulting people for absolutely no reason, they were running around in gangs. Whereas when you look at the African-American rioters, and they were, they were singular, they weren't in gangs, they were um, at most looting, um, but a lot of them were just arrested for just walking down the streets. So um, I guess the term race riot, yes, this particular incident was racially fueled uh, or fueled by racial conflict. So I guess if that's your definition of a race riot, then so be it. But um, for the most part, I think that it's a little disingenuous to categorize a lot of these conflicts to be quote unquote race riots. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Jaden. Now I'm going to pass the baton right back to you um, <laughs> as you will be interviewing Kayla. Yeah. Give us a summary of your research. <laughs> so I actually took the route of conflict too. Um, I wanted to look at how, I'm interested in photography, but I wanted to look at how photography was used within the Korean War. Um, and so I am now, it's been changing a lot just this week, uh, with Babcock's input on Tuesday. And so I'm now also looking at how um, they censored the media during the Korean War in order to fuel a certain perspective of the Korean War. And um, so this limited what they were able to research. And so I'm currently in the middle of creating a huge table on every single issue that Life Magazine did in 1950 through 1953. And I'm listing out what each article is and what it's about and whether it's um, positive or negative or if it's you know somehow neutral. Um, about the Korean War, and so I'm just looking to find how, you know, they thought that the Korean War was going, and if it was in fact a good idea or not. Um, I'm only through September of 1950 right now, so you know I've got a little bit of ways to go, but that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> so. Okay. Uh, why did you choose this topic? You kind of mentioned that you were yeah. you, were, you were interested in photography, but. Um, so I want to be a photojournalist uh, for a very long time. I wanted to do conflict photography, but I'm also realizing that it's very hard to get into. Um, and maybe there's other things closer to home that I would rather pursue instead of conflict photography, even though it is super interesting to me. Uh, so I figured that while I could, I would use this class as an option to take that route. And my grandpa was in the Korean War. He wasn't ever in Korea though. Um, he was colorblind, and so the Air Force wouldn't let him fly any planes, obviously. So he worked in London instead. And so I, you know, have heard about the Korean War just from, like, the few things he tells, but it's all from the perspective of him being in London and just working on planes. So I never learned much about the Korean War itself and what it was like in Korea. Um, and so when I started trying to figure out what to choose for a topic, I realized that a lot of the people I was talking to and a lot of my friends, um, whether they were close to my age or not, didn't know much about the Korean War unless they were growing up during that time. Um, so it's just, it was something that I thought more people needed to know about and this gave me a chance to learn a lot more about a war that I had just heard about a little bit but didn't actually know much in-depth information. So the Korean War has sometimes been referred to by various people as the Forgotten War. Mm -hmm. I think it is the Forgotten it is, in a sense. I haven't fully decided, just because, like, 
I don't know. It's it's forgotten war. We all refer to it as a forgotten war, but then you talk about it. So is it forgotten? And that's something that a lot of um, experts have argued is this considered the forgotten war when we have a name for it, we talk about it. Um, I think it's definitely one of the least talked about, though, in terms of you know the last 100 years in American history. We sort of just gloss over it. People don't always remember when it even happened, especially as like my age and then like people that are younger than me start to grow up and then get into college. They know less and less about it. If you look at textbooks, um, there are a couple different studies I looked at. They said the Korean War has very little space in history textbooks for Americans um, because they spend more time on World War II as it was a very clear victory and then they skipped to Vietnam because that's the next big, big war that we were in for a very long time. And so they just sort of skip over the Korean War because it's still unclear whether we should consider it a victory or a truce or a loss. It's unclear whether we should have done it or not. And so it's just something that's forgotten about in terms of that. But then at the same time, if you have a family member who was in Korea, it's not forgotten. You know, like my family, we all knew about it, but then my classmates didn't because they didn't have a family member in it. And so I think it really just depends on the age of the person you're talking to and whether they have direct family within the war itself, if that makes any sense. <laughs> How did you go about finding and choosing primary sources? I actually took a route similar to what you did. Um, I found that there's not a whole lot of research done on it. And specifically the photography of Korean War, there has been more research lately in the last couple decades in terms of uh, what people thought about the Korean War or specific troop movements or Trump's you know decisions within the war. But there was almost nothing on the photography of it. Um, so I started going to, uh, well, I went to like Life Magazine and I found names of photographers if they were mentioned in an article. And so I went to specifically that photographer's images and looked for what they had and when they had reported and who they published with. And so now obviously the majority of it is with Life Magazine, but I was just mainly going through secondary sources to find those primary sources and who the correspondents were and who was doing most of the publishing at the time. I have some primary sources from places like the Truman Archives and Eisenhower. Uh, but not all of the Korean War archives have been digitized, and so I'm at a stuck, like, stopping point with that. Um, so that's why I'm sticking more with Life Magazine and, you know, if there's any specific collections that have been published online from other people. Um, what is your most interesting finding up to this point? Um, so... <laughs> This is something I actually noticed earlier when I started choosing images, but hadn't realized the importance of it until I talked to Babcock. There, were, there was a book called War and Conflict, and then it's a bunch of images from all of America's conflicts. And it was published in coordination with the National Archives and Records Administration. Fingers crossed I said that right. Um, but they had a section on Korea War and Within the Korean War stuff, there were random images about when they, you know, had a landing, you know, they had a submarine or they had a ship that was crossing, and then when they went to go land, it looked very similar to things from Normandy. Uh, I still don't know the context of this other image, but there was someone 
on top of a roof that you could tell they were in Korea and everything. And they're standing up there, like, standing up a flag like they were at Iwo Jima. And so I thought it was super interesting that during the Korean War, they're showing photos that are similar to World War II. Um, and it just took a while for me to realize the importance of that. But I am now very excited to see if there's any other images that are similar to World War II. And I've seen some in Life magazine that talk about the casualties. And I have to go back and find the specific World War II images, but it seems to be that the correspondents, whether consciously or subconsciously, were trying to evoke that sort of emotion or that sort of um, conscious thought about World War II and try to tie it to Korean War, whether that was because they simply wanted to have a good image or that was what was happening at the time and so that's how they chose to document it, I'm not sure, but it's been an interesting thing to see how this war that was very different from World War II seems to have some of the same images, but yet none of them are iconic. They're not ones that you know anyone recognizes because they aren't widely published like you know the Iwo Jima photo or Robert Kappa's D-Day images or you know, even the soldier kissing the nurse when we had the celebrations at the end of the war. And so, yeah, I, I'm excited to see and just get them onto my paper so I can like prove that this is actually a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Why should people care about this topic? Uh, it's fairly obvious from what I've said. You know, I just, I think it's important that people realize this is something that happened. Um, we love to look at the Vietnam War and what an atrocity it was in terms of secrecy and you know everything with the Washington Post leaking our like files and stuff like that. But Korean War was still definitely a turning point for us, especially as it was happening during the Cold War. Um, but after like beginning in the Korean War and after that, we completely changed our defense strategy. We never backed down on the high number of dollars we would spend on the military you know we changed had a very active foreign policy change where we were determined to step in and help people if they were dealing with communism and so since then we haven't really changed <laughs> whether it's communism or not we decided to take a very protective approach supposedly and protect anyone who may be dealing with communist aggression but we have this foreign policy of stepping into many conflicts that are happening and that sort of just never backed down after the Korean War happened and we have left a lot of money within the military since Korean War and it's just been something that's occurred since then nonstop. Do you think that you will revisit this topic in the future? I'm not I'm not sure. I want to do journalism and stuff. So you know, if I find something, a cool feature too on the Korean War, or if it's an anniversary and, you know, whoever I'm working for wants to publish one, then, you know, that's my best chance. Um, I don't know that I will, like, otherwise, you know, I can still definitely talk about it with my grandpa. And, like, I know I'll remember at least some of this information going <laughs> forward. And so I can easily have topics that I bring up in conversations with friends and stuff if we ever get on the topic of conflict. And I'm be like, I know this, I can actually tell you about this, but I doubt I ever publish anything or do any more research professionally unless it's something that I'm assigned as a photojournalist. Um, since Jaden took my question, <laughs> um, 
I'm gonna throw throw just because I threw curveballs at Jay, and I don't think it'd be fair if I didn't throw curveballs at see, you. No, I gotta find so now you. there you go. You now you gotta think issue. of it. See, I'm I, I'm dishing it out. I can take it. Don't worry, I can take it. Um, so my my question um, would be. As I do believe you're not a history major, you're, are, are you a journal, I, journalism major? So I'm a or, personalized okay. program, um, photojournalism and documentary photography okay. is what the official name is. So that would be my, and so my question is, is what, coming from not a history background, or maybe you probably had no, maybe not even intention of, of doing research in history, what would you say <laughs> has been your biggest struggle or learning curve mm -hmm. from this perspective? Like, what do you think, like... Yeah, I would just say that as mm -hmm. a, what would be the biggest struggle and maybe what would be one of the, the one of the things that you unexpectedly learned from just from doing this project, not necessarily about your topic, but mm -hmm. just doing research from a historical perspective. Um, or like, how does that inform your yeah. your future as a maybe journalist? Oh, man. OK, so I lucked out in the sense that I have taken numerous history classes like you got it set. So I have a history minor, at least. Um, but I hadn't taken you know, anything like sophomore or sem, and so I was very much basing how I would go into this off of what we talked about in class or what I knew from doing research papers in my history and poli-sci classes before, because I had taken a couple last year, and so that's the only way I knew anything about, you know, like having a lit review slash historiography in this case, or having a research question with specific hypotheses. I hadn't really had to deal with that a whole lot, um, and so it was just like, what do I do? I don't know, you know. And then I had never dealt with archives, like the Truman archives. I, it was definitely a struggle for me to figure out where to go for resources. And it's something I'm still struggling with, but I think that's definitely the biggest takeaway from this project was I have a better understanding of where to go, at least for federal information, you know, federal archives. Um, but then it makes a little bit more sense as to like, if I need something for an article, you know, if I'm writing something on the federal government or a certain administration or a certain event in history, I at least know now, like I have the Library of Congress archives online and I have, you know, you can easily find like all the national archives and records that are kept around the U.S. And so it provides me with a chance to, you know, travel and to also learn more in depth from those primary sources instead of relying on what I can look up on Google or find from another newspaper that's published before. So I'm, I at least am glad I have that information now more than I did before this class. Um, just a side note, um, there's a pot, there's not a pot, but Ted talked about a guy that can art change the world and he like takes pictures, he goes into like conflict area or like places mm -hmm. of conflict and he takes pictures of like the people that are living there and he mm -hmm. posts like make big posters and like post randomly post them up on the walls and stuff oh like my that. Gosh. And so like in Palestine, in Israel, he did this and so like all of a sudden you have all these, this place where you have this intermix of, anyways, it's really cool. But when I was in China, um, a group, we, they showed this pot, pot this, 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 this TED talk and they wanted to do it in China, but they were unable to like post the pictures on buildings. And so then we all made like t-shirts and then, like, <laughs> called That's ourselves awesome. global friendship. And so like, like usually Chinese people would have a, a, a Chinese, a foreigner living in China would have a, them on their sh a shirt with them. And then we would have that. So really interesting, but I think it's interesting mm -hmm. that, that how art in conflict, I don't know where you would go with that. I don't know what your interest is, but there's, there's, mm -hmm. that's definitely an interesting topic, I think terms of research if you were going to pursue art or, mm -hmm. or you know as research that or if you're going to pursue that in the future of conflict and art. Yeah. So. 
So mm-hmm. how did how did photography in the Korean War affect the outlook of the war in terms of the Yeom front and the international stage? So I, <laughs> it's still like something I'm trying to finish answering just based on the Life Magazine archives that I'm still going through, but um, they at least tried to make it interesting in the very beginning. They were like, oh, how many different angles can we take on one single story? And so they would have three different types of features on you know, the home front or like the soldiers going to war in the same issue. And so they were bombarding the Life Magazine with issues on the Korean War right away. Um, but it seems like by September, they were having articles that were talking about, well, this is going to be an issue for the Democrats in November if they can't figure out what they're doing. And so I'm already, you know, within a few months of the war, like, starting to see how they used photography to keep up people's interest. And they, about every other issue had a cover photo that was a feature, like a profile photo of someone whether it's MacArthur or just a random soldier, or there was a nurse from Sweden that was stopping in the US before being shipped out to Korea to go help on the Red Cross. And so they did all these features on people, but it seems the editorials are saying differently, at least in September. And so the photography is trying to offset it, but then people are like, well, we still got to figure out what we're doing. Like we obviously don't have enough resources. We have to have more tanks because, or we have to have more anti-tank weapons because our weapons are bouncing off of their tanks. And so it's very dramatic difference in what they're saying versus what they're trying to portray photographically. And I think that's also part of the, like due to the fact that the correspondents are there, but then they're getting censored on what they can say. So then they have to show it photographically. And then it's up to um, the people that are you know creating the magazine each week to say what they want. but. I'm not totally set on that argument just because I still haven't finished getting through everything. Um, it's, yeah, it's going to be an interesting finish for this paper, <laughs> <laughs> especially with less than a week until, you know, it's the first draft is due and I completely switched angles this week. <laughs> but it's your turn to be on All right, team. my turn. Okay. I'm ready to go. Can you give us a brief summary about your topic? Um, sure. Um, uh, I am looking at uh, the, maybe the U.S.'s response to the Tibetan uprising would be the 1959 uprising, which I was kind of the, the overall topic, I guess, but it's not really, once you get into more details, it's not really like that. But um, so in 1949, um, the uh, China fought a civil war between the, the Communist Party led by Chairman Mao and then um, the Nationalist Party, and it was evident that the Nationalist Party was going to lose, and that, that the Communist Party, the Communist Army, was going to win. And so, um, at that point, Communist China took over over the mainland, and there was a quotation in a CIA document that said, "If, for example, the Communists should take over all of China proper, and the national government should disappear, we would be faced with the alternative of one." treating Tibet as under the authority of the communist government, which we should clearly wish to avoid, or two, deal with Tibet as for all intents and purposes independent. And the latter policy would clearly be in our advantage. So Tibet, maybe, um, Tibet, there was a time of autonomy, maybe, I mean, obviously there's, there's thousands of years of history in China, so 
if you look at it from a history, there was moments in history where Tibet was autonomous, and then during the last dynasty of China, Tibet was incorporated into China, and or other dynasties too, but during the last long one is once that dynasty fell, Tibet took it upon themselves to claim independence, and then um, when the Communist Party won, they had gone in Tibet and reclaimed Tibet um, and had signed an agreement. And so, um, so based on this document, um, and then after, I guess you should say, after the Communists had gone into Tibet, um, they had signed an agreement with the Tibetans, and then they had gone in and um, maybe implemented some policies that the Tibetans did not like or did not felt like they agreed to. And so there was a large uprising um, in March of 1959. And so, um, so from that time, the United States wanted to support this uprising and they had, since 1956, had been supporting a Tibetan resistance movement primarily through, um, through, through like uh, supplies um, and, and maybe helping refugees get out. And so, um, so based on this, since Tibetan uprising was gonna have, there was, there was a conversation between the United States and the Dalai Lama at the time, of whether or not Tibet should claim independence and the consequences of that. And so while the United States initially had thought this would be a good thing for them as, they, as I, the, the, of what I read in 1949, their position, but their official position had been that Tibet was, was part of China, but yet it had in some autonomy. And so this was going to be whether or not the United States was wrestling whether or not they should support an independence movement. And their decision to support an independence movement was based on whether or not there was going to be independent support for that and whether or international support for that. And so the, the CIA had communicated with India, with Taiwan, um, and with Britain at the time and to find out, you know, if the Dalai Lama did declare independence, what should we do? Would you support the Dalai Lama? Would you support, you know, and stuff like that. And so um, that's what most of the documents that I'm reading is going on about that type of stuff. They do talk about also supporting the Dalai Lama or, and the, the, the things through ammunition and supplies. And there was a place in Colorado where they actually trained Tibetan um, uh, Tibetan rebels, I guess you would call them, and um, in, in guerrilla warfare um, that the United States had done. So, um, so basically, um, yeah, so that's what, I, that's what my topic is reading about this, and I guess my, my topic kind of goes into how did the United States form their official position, because um, they were asked by the Dalai Lama early in 59 saying, you know, this is what I want to do, but they never ever, they, it wasn't until the end of that year that they decided to not support independence. They said that they're, that they, that they, that they still supported, like they said that Tibet should still be part of China, but yet they should have more autonomy. I can't remember what the word that they used, but, that, but they, they slightly changed their, their, their policy, but they're not officially support independence. And so this war went on through 1972, or this supporting, not war, this supporting the resistance movement went on until 1972. And basically nothing has come of it. So you have 16 years of, uh, of, uh, of support that the United States had put into this resistance movement. And it basically just dwindled um, with the change of, um, of leadership in the United States, just totally shifted uh, the policy. With Nixon, Nixon totally shifted the policy to be more favor favorable towards China. So basically this whole, and, and Tibet has always, has constantly since then been a, 
been an issue, but it has basically nothing to support an independence movement or nothing like that. I don't think the United States has been involved or interested in, in getting as involved as it once was. Why did you choose this topic? Um, yeah, well, um, I think as I mentioned earlier, um, I lived in China for six years. Um, my wife is also Chinese. And when you live in China, and uh, you have a Chinese wife who's very smart and has studied, paid attention significantly more than I did in high school and college when it comes to history. <laughs> I've realized that my wife is smarter than me. Don't tell her I said that. Hopefully she won't listen to this. <laughs> but my wife is significantly smarter than me when it comes to history, especially about China, um, as I'm sure most, obviously, people are, people of their own country are more, more, more knowledgeable about their past. So. Um, while I love my wife to death and we get along very, very well, um, some of our maybe point of contentions have been about political issues, as you can imagine being in an international relationship. Um, and so through this, I've realized I do not know much about the, the rest of the world, and this is a great opportunity. I do plan possibly to move back to China in the future um, and maybe work in international school. And so I said, this is a great opportunity for me to educate myself and learn more about a part of the world that is very dear to me, not just because my wife, um, but also because uh, I spend a significant part of my life there. And so I thought, you know, this is, this is a great opportunity to do that. So, um, and actually I, uh, I, I, when I looked through the, 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 the topic, I was like, oh, what was going on in China in the 1950s? And then I kind of looked and I knew that the Civil War had just ended. And then um, I, uh, um, I looked at Taiwan, what was going on in Taiwan, and that really wasn't a thing. And then I started uh, looking into Tibet, and this was, that was the other main um, issue. And so then I kind of just started uh, um, looking into what was going on in Tibet, and then I saw this Tibetan uprising, and then I started searching the Tibetan uprising, and then all of a sudden I see this secret mission, CIA secret mission in Tibet, and I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. So then I, uh, I was like, oh, secret mission in Tibet, let's check this out. And the documents, uh, I guess I'll go into the documents later, but yeah, so that's... So how did you go about finding or choosing your primary sources? Um, yeah, so that's perfect lead-in. Um, you're good at this, you're good at this. Um, so, uh, so I was, as I just said, I was, I was, I was looking into this. I was like, oh, interesting CIA documents. And so then I started looking into these secret CIA documents, and the CIA documents that a lot of the the, the research that was that was done on the Tibetan uprising uses the CIA documents, but they don't really like focus specifically on a certain year. Like I, I specifically focused on 1959 because I was curious how the CIA or the United States responded to this uprising, but. The, as, as you can tell, it lasted for 15 or 14 years. So um, there were a lot of CIA documents that people, and people that, you know, obviously historians who dedicate to their, 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 their research to Tibet or maybe to CIA secret missions, look at it from a much uh, broader spec perspective. So, um, so I just said, hey, these were released, I believe in 1998, 97. I can't remember the specific year. So then I was just like, hey, let's see if I can find these documents. And then I, you know, found them, found them right away. And I was like, wow. And it's like, I don't know if there's, there's, uh, and the way I printed out, there was like 40 to 50 pages of documents. And those, I mean, that could be like one or two documents on it. I mean, some documents are half a page, some documents are three pages long. So it just depends on thing. But it was, it's part of something that's published every year on like the United States foreign policy 
of towards Asia or whatever, or towards China, and then this was a small section of that, so, so I kind of got lucky. Yeah, uh, yeah, it sounds like you had the jackpot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, little Joe's. Uh -huh. <laughs> what is your, going to be your most interesting finding from that, then? Um, so, I don't, I would just say that for me, I think the United States public position, or how they, what they told, like, this is their official position that they started telling everybody that we're going to support. We do not support independence, but yet we will support their further autonomy, I guess you could say. Um, I just think my finding is that while the United States may have a position or something that they may have, like this is what, because I think initially going in, the United States wanted to support Tibetan independence, but they realized that there was not international support, and they realized that there was a lot of complexities to supporting Tibetan independence. So therefore, that based on the, the research, or based on the work that the CIA did, they realized that we can't really, like the, the, the consequences of doing, of making this political decision, maybe not, um, maybe the, the consequences may not, may not outweigh the, the benefits. So I think that they, um, that, um, that how the United States makes their their position, um, uh, or how they did it was maybe not necessarily based because they wanted to not do it, but because they didn't have the the, the international support from other countries. Why should people care about this topic? Um, well, I mean, do people care what goes on? I mean, I don't know. Do people care about the CIA? Do people care? I mean, we kind of have this, this, this agency that we don't really know much about, and we don't really know what exactly they do. But obviously, we can find out in 20, 30 years when the documents of what the CIA is doing, you know, doing today is released to the public, you know? And so, and so I think, and even in the, the, the documents that I have, there's, it's a redacted version. There's some stuff that it clearly says, like, lines 58 through 62 were removed from this document and so we're not we're not we're not um released so um i think that's i mean i think that's 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 a really thing and i mean the united states clearly did not have a clear goal when they started supporting the tibetan uprising they did not have enough information so the question is is would they have done it knowing what the, what what it cost the government what it, what it did you know that nothing really came about it would they in hindsight is 2020 but would they have done that knowing all the stuff that they know now. And so I think that that's, that's a pretty important decision. And, you know, um, I think that, and I also think that we, we, when we look, I mean, because the United States is who we are, and we are arguably the, the world's largest superpower. And so we have our, we are involved around the world in many different ways. And so there's, it's not as simple as, I'll just leave this. It's not as simple as we want to support democracy. It's significantly more complex than that. There's significantly more, more, um, more reasons why, or more, 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 uh, more factors that play into why we are or why we choose to get involved in the conflicts that we do. And I understand that the United States can't save everybody, but there's a reason that we find interest in the Middle East more than we find interest in Africa. <laughs> so okay i don't know this is before we you know finish up or anything but i was wondering if you think they would have had more involvement if we weren't so preoccupied with other conflicts obviously the vietnam war was happening uh -huh. during some of this time and so 
do you think that you know they weren't wanting to get involved with this because they already were worrying about Vietnam, or they had come off of you know a, a loss, truce, whatever you want to call it, with Korean War? You know, they were worried about having another unpopular uh, conflict. Yeah, you take this it. This is my feelings. This is not. I mean, I think there's evidence to support what I feel, but I don't think that I can make this conclusion based off of what I've read. I think the Korean War is exactly why the United States was in Tibet. And that is because mm -hmm. the Cold War was going on. Communist China, exactly in the very first mm -hmm. quote, Communist China. We were okay with Tibet the way it was when the Republic of China was in charge. But now that Communist China is in charge, we're all of a sudden we care mm -hmm. about Tibet. And so your enemies, what is it? Your, your enemies. Your enemy's enemy is your friend. So if if, if <laughs> communist China is my enemy, and there's a, there's and I'm fighting a war against communism right now, very simplified. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's. I mean I'm I'm using very simplified chain 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 terms of this. And there's an uprising against a communist government. Yep. It might be in my interest to support this <laughs> uprising, regardless of whether they get independence or not. It is in my interest to support this because they are my enemy of my enemy. It just sounds like General Mao created a lot of issues for the United States. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he yep. just got in the Korean War. He involved in Tibet. But you can either ask any other questions or ask the last one. Do you think you'll ever revisit this topic in the future? Um, maybe. Um, I don't know if I will, I will revisit Tibet in general, but I'm definitely going to be very curious about the CIA from here on out. <laughs> as well as like different missions or like how the United States gets involved in, in, in certain things or what, you know, it, it will make me question, question things. Um, I, I, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, I, I don't know if you can tell in the way I get passionate about this, but <laughs> it's really important, I think, when you're doing research like this to find something you're really interested in. And so I really, I, I, I took the time early on to make sure that it was something I was going to be passionate about and interested in. Otherwise, if you don't have that interest, it's very difficult to, uh, to, to find it if it's not natural. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what my future holds. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm getting. I think at one day I wanted to dream of getting a PhD, but Father Time, you know, is, uh, Father Time has has maybe different 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 plans for myself, and so um, I don't know. But I yeah, I, and I don't. I mean, I like researching this, but I, as as I know, um, uh, Dr. Biba knows that when you when you get into academia, you choose a topic, and that topic becomes your life, and so. You really have to be interested in it. And even like I was interested in this at this moment, but I don't think I could make a career out of this and still be interested in it. Um, so, um, yeah, and that's probably why I will never get my PhD because I, I like researching short, short things and not, not for the rest of my life. Because oh, yeah. I'd rather teach than yep. do research. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's all, right? See all. Thank you all for listening to our, to our thoughts. That's all. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed History 452. This episode was produced by Catherine Biba using Anchor Podcast and written by the students interviewed. Our music is Ask Rufus, which was written and produced by Jason Shaw.